Hello, and welcome to Life Online, a new podcast from Ofcom. I'm Joe Smithies, and across this series, we're going to be speaking to experts about what adults and kids in the UK are doing online, how they feel about it, and what can be done to keep people safe. Because you may have heard that here in the UK, new online safety laws are being debated in Parliament. These will give Ofcom new powers and duties to help people lead a safer life online. Today on the pod, we're going to be talking about misinformation, disinformation, and whether you can spot them. If you have a very strong emotional reaction to something, pause. If it makes you angry, if it makes you sad, if it makes you uh, sort of respond in a way that actually, you know, in some way sort of puts the logical part of your brain to the back, stop. Before we get started, I should say our discussion may cover some challenging themes. We'll let you know if we're going to talk about anything distressing. Also, you'll hear opinions that are those of our guests, not necessarily of Ofcom. Now, every single minute, 500 hours of content are uploaded to YouTube, 5,000 videos viewed on TikTok, and 700,000 stories shared on Instagram. With all that information, at the touch of our smartphones, having the right critical skills and understanding to decipher fact from fiction has never been more important. But Ofcom's new research shows that 30% of UK adults who go online, that's 14.5 million people, are unsure about or don't even consider whether what they see is true. A further 6%, that's one in every 20 internet users, believe everything they see online. To get a grip on what this means for the spread of misinformation, we have some fabulous guests here today. I'm really pleased to be joined by Professor Rasmus Nielsen, who is Director of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism and Professor of Political Communication at the University of Oxford, and by Rebecca Skippage, the BBC's Disinformation Editor. Also with me is Luca Antilli, Ofcom's Head of Media Literacy Research. Luca, I'm going to turn to you first, and these are some quite scary numbers, aren't they? Yes, thanks. Yeah, they are pretty stark figures, especially in isolation. So maybe just for a little context, tracking how people consume media, what they think about it is a key part of what we do at Ofcom. And over the years, we've obviously seen a massive shift onto online platforms, and that's particularly the case when it comes to news and information consumption. So just to illustrate that, back in 2013, TV was the leading source, with nearly 8 in 10 UK adults accessing news via TV versus just a third who are accessing uh, news via the internet. But you fast forward to 2021, and TV news access has remained pretty constant, but the figure for internet uh, uh, news access has risen from a third to almost three quarters of of adults. And a half of adults are accessing news specifically on social media. Amongst younger users too, so those aged 16 to 34, the internet has actually overtaken television as the main source for news. So the question is, in this online, very social media environment, how well equipped are people in assessing the truthfulness of the information they see and read? And that's an interesting question for us because over time we've seen that a majority of adults and indeed 12 to 17 year olds tell us actually they are very confident in their abilities. And uh, should they be confident? How good are they in, in practice at spotting well, misinformation? Well, yeah, this, I mean, this is where our newest set of survey data comes in. And this is the first time in our media literacy surveys that alongside measuring people's <clears throat> stated confidence in their critical understanding capabilities, uh, we actually tested that confidence across a range of online, online scenarios, including assessing information, recognising advertising, judging whether a text or message is suspicious, or whether a social media profile is genuine. 
And in brief, what we found is that particularly in social media environments, many adult users and under 18s significantly overestimate their capability to spot misinformation. So when shown an official government travel checklist posted on Instagram and asked to tell us what aspects of that post signified to them that it was most likely to be genuine, around 60% of adult internet users base their assessment on indicators that we can say are pretty unreliable, such as the number of likes the post had, the professional look of the post. Uh, and in fact, only 22 based their assessment on what we could say are more reliable uh, indicators. And we saw a similar pattern amongst children aged 12 to 17 and 74 saying they're, percent saying they're very confident in assessing whether information was true or not, but only 11% basing their assessment of a, a genuine NHS COVID post on indicators that we might say are, are more reliable. So it sounds like, as in most walks of life, people are not as good as they, as they think they are at finding fault in things that aren't true. Correct. That's that's what the, the data is indicating to us. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Luca. Uh, Rasmus Nielsen, you're an eminent researcher in the field of misinformation. How do Ofcom's findings fit with what you have discovered in your work? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, very important that Ofcom is looking more closely at this, in particular in uh, in light of its expanded coming responsibilities. Um, it's very clear, as Luca says, that the move to a more distributed and digital media environment has been accompanied by an explosion in the amount of content available. And amongst that explosion, there is also great growth uh, in misinformation, false and misleading information, whether spread for political purposes, uh, for commercial purposes, other purposes, in particular uh, on some of the large platforms such as Facebook uh, and YouTube, but also uh, many other environments. Um, our research suggests that most people are very aware of this phenomenon. Uh, a majority of people in the UK say they're concerned about whether the information they come across online is, uh, is, is real or, or not. Um, in general, we find uh, in our research, and this is something others have found as well, that people navigate that information uh, environment on the basis of what we call generalized skepticism. So people are not sort of credulous. Uh, they, they are not naively accepting of everything that they come across online. Um, in fact, if anything, sometimes perhaps we have almost the opposite problem, that people are so skeptical that it can be paralyzing um, and don't really always feel that they have any trustworthy sources they can turn to because, of course, sometimes they will be aware that misinformation can also come from the top and that there are situations in which established media organizations or prominent politicians or other mainstream institutions have been shown uh, to spread false and misleading uh, information. Um, when we look at the research about how people engage with things that independent professional fact checkers has identified as uh, false and misleading information, um, I think it's really important to recognize that while the problem is, is very clearly real and, and particularly pronounced on some of the big platforms uh, that have a lot of work to do, it also seems to be the case that for the vast majority of people, they will engage with far more information from other sources um, than from sources identified as spreading false and misleading information, and that the engagement uh, with misinformation tends to be highly concentrated amongst small communities who often seek out like-minded information and other people with whom they share beliefs, um, whether these are political, uh, social beliefs, sometimes religious, uh, or, or other ways in which they come together, uh, often uh, orchestrated or curated or animated uh, by sort of active groups in society, including often domestic political actors. Okay, so that's interesting. So although all of us might be at risk of seeing or even believing misinformation online, some people are more at risk from what you're, you're saying because 
or by virtue of being a member of a certain community which might be targeted? That's absolutely true. Um, I think there are two sides to this. One is the question of risk. Uh, how um, infodemically vulnerable are people, uh, if you will? Um, uh, to what extent do they have the resources um, and the institutional support uh, to be resilient in the face of attempts to mislead them um, or in the face of misleading information that they come across that, that may be sort of intention, well-intentioned or, or at least innocently intentioned. Um, I, but I, I do think that there is a parallel side to this that we need to keep in mind, which is agency and choice. Um, sometimes this is not about risk. Sometimes this is about choice. Um, and people will find one another in communities, in particular in communities that they feel um, are being marginalized by mainstream institutions, and in particular in communities uh, where there are prominent public actors that are trying to bring people together and gin up a base uh, around an issue. Um, and I, I think we just need to keep in mind that there is a sort of a profoundly political dimension to the most consequential misinformation in our societies. Um, and that while it's very um, useful sometimes to talk about misinformation in the abstract, when we get to the details of the matter, uh, often uh, it will sort of bleed into the, just the, the, the terrain of the sort of irreducibly diverse uh, and disputatious political discourse that, that comes with having a plural society. Indeed. Now, let's bring in Rebecca Skippage. Rebecca, you're the BBC's disinformation editor and your team, I gather, is busier than ever just now. So we, we started off in a reasonably small way about sort of four years ago um, and, and have kind of grown um, because the need has become, you know, ever greater. Um, and but we basically do kind of uh, three things that, that we have continued to do right from the word go. We debunk and verify. We join the dots, so we show people how information, disinformation ecosystems work, and then we kind of show the real-world impact of what happens, um, because some disinformation journalism can be very data-heavy, and actually that's you know, not the way that you uh, communicate to people effectively, um, how it is that actually it is important that they, you know, their eyes are open to, to what is happening. Um, and yeah, it's been incredibly busy um, over the last uh, months, as, as you would imagine. Um, we brought together a team um, of people who um, had the sort of skills that we knew that we would need as we saw um the Russian troops starting to amass close to the Ukrainian border. So we had disinformation uh, experts, open source technology, um, uh, sorry, open source intelligence experts, uh, regional experts, language experts, uh, and we brought them all together. Um, and we started to look at some of these kind of false flags that we were seeing um, and some of the sort of misinformation that was being put out on state media. Um, and then when the invasion happened, um, we sort of, you know, kicked them all in, into action um, and started started a, a, what we kind of called a verification grid. So literally every sort of bit of information that we see going viral or every bit of information that um, is flagged up by one of our colleagues, um, they kind of pull it to pieces and say, yeah, it, you know, is this actually Kiev? Is this actually uh, an accent that comes from this particular re region? Is this a tank that we're likely to see uh, that the Ukrainian army have got? Um, and say, you know, yep, it's it's genuine um, and uh, and and it's true. Uh, yes, it's it's genuine, but it's misinformation. Um, uh, or you know, we're, we're just kind of continuing to work on it. And we can't see it. Um, and this has kind of been the basis um, for 
the BBC's reporting. Um, you'll be aware of the fact that in Russia, um, there is no war, apparently. It's a special military operation that continues. Um, and so actually by, you know, enabling uh, the BBC in the various different ways that it's uh, used to try and get this information to Russians and being able to say this is actually what's happening. You know, we think we're playing a really important part in, in, in sort of telling the accurate story of what's happening on the ground. And how big is this team? Just give people a a sense of the scale. It's not huge. We, we are we are a small but um, a very dedicated unit, and we bring in um, other people though from um, other bits of the BBC. So sort of places like Reality Check and uh, BBC Trending, the brilliant work of Mariana Spring that I'm sure you'll be aware of. And as I say, you know, we call on our colleagues in uh, language services, disinformation journalism, which is you know reasonably new discipline. And and you know, I'm I've been a journalist for 25 years. It is the most collaborative form of journalism I've ever worked. In. Everybody wants to pitch in. Everybody has a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a different skill that they can bring into it. Um, and this is certainly kind of, you know, a brilliant example of how that's worked. That's right. And you're specialists in this area, but actually every journalist has the duty to try and uh, identify what is, uh, what, is, what is false and what is willfully false. That's always been the case. But do you think it's getting harder for journalists? Because in the last few years, we've seen political leaders around the world kind of weaponize misinformation for electoral purposes. One of the things that it's part of my job to do is to make sure that these skills are um, uh, are, are, are shared across the entire BBC because we've been very focused, and I think we're as guilty as this of anyone else, uh, on the English-speaking world. Um, and actually, disinformation is completely rife across huge swathes of the world, particularly the global south, and the eyeballs are not there. So um, one of the things that I've done is I've got a team in Nigeria now and a team in India, and we really really focus on disinformation that is in uh, local languages. And we then put the disinformation journalism, the fact checks, the verification, the, this is how you can do it yourself, back onto those same platforms in those local languages. Uh, so we are making sure that they get to where the kind of root cause of the issue is. Absolutely. So it's a global issue and, and uh, a global challenge. Uh, Rasmus, just bringing you back in, given what you know about uh, the increasing challenge of misinformation online, what Rebecca's just been saying about the practical challenge of combating it. How optimistic do you think we can afford to be over the next few months and years about uh, society's ability to get a grip on this this problem and, and protect people from what can be really quite harmful misinformation? Well, I think the answer to that question uh, depends on sort of how one thinks about three different issues. Um, the first one is whether one on balance believe that all of us as citizens are reasonably sensible uh, and capable individuals uh, able to live our own lives uh, and, and take the sort of the bumps along the way. Um, our research around the coronavirus uh, pandemic, for example, suggested that despite quite a lot of sort of uh, pundits having pretty dismissive views of fellow citizens, that most people were very informed, very sensible and very cautious throughout um, the pandemic. Uh, so I suppose that I personally come down as sort of an evidence-based optimist when it comes uh, to how capable we are as individuals, as members of the public. Um, the second one is uh, what do we know sort of tactically, if you will, what, are, what do we know about interventions that can make a, a difference? Uh, and there too, I would say that in the last sort of five or six years, we've seen the emergence of a I think really encouraging knowledge base uh, of professional practices around fact-checking, verification. The work that Rebecca does at the BBC is, is world-leading in that area, but there are many others, uh, independent fact-checkers, full fact here in the UK, for example, um, the network orchestrated by Pointer at international level. 
uh, and many counterparts elsewhere, who often with very limited resources make a real difference, the same way that we are seeing various initiatives in the media literacy space uh, that research suggests actually makes a difference, just as we also know that some of the uh, steps that platforms are taking, however uh, uh, inadequate or incipient they might be, uh, including labeling and the like, can also reduce engagement with and distribution uh, of uh, identified misinformation. So I think we have a sort of tactical stock of tools and steps we can take. I think that the, the hard part, in a way, is the third one, um, which is how we deal uh, with the fact that misinformation often comes from the top, uh, in, from domestic actors, uh, including elected officials, uh, including uh, media organizations uh, in a country. Uh, and that, I think, is much harder uh, because that becomes a very sort of uh, existential question for liberal societies between the, sort of the balance we want uh, between institutions that focus on veracity uh, versus a recognition of the fact that we live in societies in which many of these things are essentially political uh, and, and we have historically uh, not wanted to confer on any one actor in society the right to decide what people can and cannot say uh, and what is and is not uh, true um, when it comes to sort of robust political discourse. And that, I think, is a much harder challenge and one I know that Ofcom will be facing in the years ahead. Well, I was going to say that's that's exactly the kind of tightrope, I suppose, which uh, regulation needs to walk between protecting freedom of expression and clamping down on the really uh, harmful content. If, I'm, if I may just add on that, yeah. Joe, I think one particularly uh, hard balance to strike there is between efficacy, what can one do that makes a measurable difference, and credibility, uh, what can one do that members of the public will see as legitimate in the democratic society. So I think it's worth noting here that it's not just eggheads like me who recognize that misinformation often comes from the top. When we survey members of the British public, amongst the sources that they identify as being most concerned about misinformation from comes domestic politicians and domestic media. Uh, so people know that despite the fact that most professionals have high integrity and, and would never do such things knowingly, despite the fact that most elected officials are honest, hardworking public servants, sometimes, either inadvertently or sadly advertently, um, you know, we, we have domestic elites and domestic media who are intertwined with some of the problems that we face around misinformation. Well, certainly politicians in the UK here are keen to uh, bring in a, a structure which will address this. Parliament, of course, is debating the online safety bill, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, Ofcom will have that role in uh, working with the platforms to tighten up the processes which are designed to, to clamp down on really harmful content. Luca, just going back to you as uh, uh, Ofcom's uh, research head in this area. Uh, Ofcom will be doing some more research over the coming months and years, won't it, to increase understanding, both our understanding and, and that of uh, people in this in this area? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that we, we have been doing uh, ever since we, we, we began and we'll continue to do. Um, I think focusing, as we have just recently started, increasingly on practic practical behaviour, so behaviour and practice, and also efficacy, which Rasmus mentioned. So what other things... From the user point of view, because I'm, I, I, my area is, is to deal with users, um, how, what, what are the best ways that people can, can uh, protect themselves from falling foul of, of misinformation? Um, what works um, uh, is really the, the, the next big question. And we'll obviously be turning our resources to that. Yeah, that is a huge question. And we won't try and answer it now. But just to finish, I want to ask um, Rebecca and Rasmus actually the same question. If you had one tip for people who are looking to be on the lookout, if you like, for things which might mislead online, what would it be? Yeah, my 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 sort of key first tip, which kind of leads on to others, is always um, 
if you have a very strong emotional reaction to something, pause. You know, if it if it if it makes you angry, if it makes you sad, if it makes you uh, sort of respond in a way that actually, you know, in some way sort of puts the logical part of your brain to the back, stop. And there's various other things to do with, you know, checking sources and, you know, working out who might benefit from you um, sort of believing this sort of information. But the key thing is stop. And if in doubt, don't share. Good advice, Rasmus. Well, I mean, I suppose that um, I would just encourage people, uh, if it's something that they're actually thinking about acting on, doing something consequential on the basis of double check, use a search engine of your choice. Um and uh, and secondly, I think it's important to remain very conscious of the failings and, and foibles of powerful institutions in our society. Uh, but with all their imperfections, our research suggests, and we are not alone in this, that paying attention uh, to news media, in particular to public service news media and to um, uh, you know newspapers with a heavy emphasis on factual reporting on current affairs demonstrably help people be more resilient to misinformation and better informed about public affairs. Um, so, you know, um, I would say this where, given where I work, I suppose, but putting on my pure scientist hat, the evidence suggests that paying attention to news and media can in fact help. Okay, we'll leave it there. But thank you for those practical tips for all of us looking to navigate uh, this, this uh, increasingly challenging online space. My thanks again to Rasmus Nielsen from the Reuters Institute and the University of Oxford to Rebecca Skippage from the BBC and to Luca Antilli from Ofcom. And that's all for now. Uh, Life Online will be discussing some new areas uh, over the coming weeks, uh, ranging from things like cyberbullying all the way through to being cancelled online. So stay tuned for that and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.